Last week at the 11, so you guys at the 9 missed this, at the end of the 11, we came up with a new kind of response, like I say something, you say something thing. And so if you were at the 11 last week, you caught it, but most of you weren't, so I'm going to let you in on the secret. So every time you go to an Easter service, you'll often hear the pastor get up, and the first thing he says is, he is risen. And the church says... Is risen indeed, right? Some of you, it was like your first time in church, like these people are crazy already. I get it, okay? He is risen, he is risen indeed. And we thought, man, there's nothing for Christmas for this. There's no Advent kind of thing. We thought maybe there should be. And so last week, what I threw out to you is, is I'm going to say, and we're going to say this throughout the Christmas season and throughout Advent, and I'd love if it just became a thing that you guys did to remind us of this truth. And so I say, he has come, and you respond with, he is coming again, Okay? Pretty good. Okay, right? Right? Okay, so tweet it. Um, so ready? He has come. Amen, right? We live now, church, in the in-between of he has come. The wait is over, but we find a different hope and a different expectation and a different waiting for when he returns and his kingdom comes in fullness, but we're not there yet. But we get to live in this tension of the in-between. But what we're trying to do this series is enter back into Israel's story from the Old Testament. What must it have been like for the Jews to eagerly anticipate and wait for the coming Savior who would be Jesus? In their story, and so I want to give you a little context for the story. Anthony did a great job breaking it down last week as well. I want to give you the same thing and a little bit more, just that we're still on the same page week over week of why this is such a big deal. You see, the way God wanted to show himself and bless the world was through people. He could have done it numerous ways, I'm sure. He's God, he's wise, he could have come up with something else, but his decision was to come in his fullness through man, through a people, and so through Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, towards the beginning of your Bibles, he raises up a man named Abraham, and he says, through you I will make a great nation. I will make your name great, and I will bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So this was his vision for reaching the world. I will raise up and bring together a people. Those people will go to the world. That was his idea. So what happens with the people of Israel is they kind of follow God, they don't follow God, and they receive this law from God, which we call the Torah, which are the first five books of your Bible, where God says, this is how you're to live. This is how we are to be a separate people, but very engaged with how we care and bless the world. And so he gives them a vision and a law that would allow them to be able to do that well. Now, in the midst of this, God was their king. That was the idea. God was their primary ruler, whatever he said went, and so that's the way they did things. But in the midst of it, they began to look around and see that the nations and the cultures and the people around them had actual human kings, had people that they could touch and that they could know and they could ask questions to in a very practical sense, the way that you and I speak with one another. So they implored their king, God, the Yahweh, to say, we want an actual king so we can be like all the other nations. And so God granted their wish and gave them kings. And then through the story of the Bible, we see that most of the kings were not very good. Most of the kings, in fact, moved the people away from God in significant ways to where the people were forgetting who God was and what he has done and what that meant that they were called to be a blessing to the nations. And so they lost God and they lost their mission. So in the midst of that, God sends a prophet named Isaiah. And that's what we're studying this Advent season. 
Isaiah is sent to the people of Israel to say, listen up, guys, if you don't watch out, I'm sending calamity. Like, I'm sending someone who will judge Israel, and they will take you over. Namely, Assyria and Babylon are coming, and they will rule over you. They will take you into exile. And this is because of the wickedness of you forgetting me, engaging in sin, and then not pursuing the mission and the calling that I've given you to be a blessing to the nations. And so we pick it up in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Imagine the people of Israel in their longing and hopefulness and expectation. What will come? We need deliverance. We need a Messiah. We need something better. Already in Isaiah chapter 7, we were told that someone would come and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Israel is being warned, hey, you're distant from me. We need to get right, but there's calamity coming. And so this eager hope from the people, just hear me. And this is somewhat ironic, but think about you as a kid when you were younger, if you're here and you're a kid, when you woke up Christmas morning. Now, did you wake up and run out and long to read the scriptures to learn and encounter Jesus? No. You pro- Well, maybe some of you did, and then great job, parents. Way to go. But if you instead ran down... And you saw consumption, right? Like you just, you saw capitalism. You saw Walmart, right? And it was just wrapped in beautiful bows and paper. And hear me, this is not an attack on gifts. We're going to give gifts to Finley and James. Like that's not it. But that's what you saw. And your eager hope was, is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? Finley keeps asking, how many more sleeps till Christmas, right? And hear me, as soon as December 26th, it's going to be, hey, buddy, sorry, 364 more sleeps till Christmas. This eager hope and anticipation. Now, now take all that and say, well, maybe church, people who love Jesus as Lord and Savior, the eager hope would be that we wake up and say, oh, my gosh, my Savior was born this day, that we celebrate, that we, that we move into this moment to say, remind ourselves of the goodness, the Savior has come, the wait is over. For Israel, they were still waiting. And so when this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 comes, it was heartily good news for them. But I wonder how it was interpreted at first, right? They start reading, Isaiah comes out, listen up, it's all going bad, everything's going down the drain, you're totally hosed, but guess what? I'm sending a baby. (laughs) What? Is this Stewie? Like, are you sending Stewie to us? Like, how is this? And he says, but no, 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 there's more. He's going to be a king, but wait a minute, the king thing hasn't really worked out well for us to this point. Like, like kings have taken us from you, not brought us to you. So it's a baby king. Like how, and so herein lies the importance of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That the names that are ascribed to our Savior have utmost importance for a people who wait in expectant hope that a Savior would come to deliver them. And so last week, Anthony did wonderful counseling. Today, we focus on mighty God. 
The next couple weeks, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Names have power. When Verity and I, when we first started dating, Verity was turning 21, okay? And so at her 21st birthday, uh, different people could come up and kind of give tributes to her. She was like, oh, brag on me, brag on me, that type of thing. Just kidding, that's not her. If you know her, she like hates when people talk to her, so don't talk to her. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to get totally not fed tonight or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Not that she does all the cooking. I cook. Okay, you get it. So, uh, um, and, and so what happened on her 21st birthday, people come up, come up and say nice things about her. And they said three things. They said that she is regal, okay, that she is peaceful, uh, and she is, or sorry, a regal, truthful, okay. Uh, and what was the other one? Regal, truthful, and Gracious, that's what I was gracious. Yeah, thank you. I was like, what is that third one? And gracious, right? And so over and over, everyone that kept coming up, like, like all independently said these three things over and over about her. And so Verity, like, randomly looked up her name to figure out what Verity and Sarah means. And they mean regal, truth, and grace. So in this, Verity's thinking, oh my gosh, like names have so much power. And then she remembered this prophecy that someone had given her that she was going on to marry a man of peace right? A man of peace. And at the time, I'm trying to date her. And so she goes and looks up my name. What do you think Vincent Martin means? It means warlike conqueror, okay? Of which I'm like, that's right, okay? Okay, but she literally, because of the power of name, was like, I got to get out of this. Like, this is not the right guy. And then she found out that I'm so gentle and kind, okay? Names have power. And so as Israel be hearing this prophecy from Isaiah, they'd say, okay, well, we don't know about the king thing, and I don't understand this baby piece because God going to come form the baby. Like, it doesn't make a ton of sense of what they knew about God. Putting God into a helpless babe made no sense. And so it's the names then that give power and hope and expectation to the people of God. And I'm telling you now, we, the wait is over for us. So now we just live in, he's here. This is who rules us. This is who, who is king of the church, king of your life, if you see him as Lord and Savior, if you call yourself a Christian. And so that is the context for our sermon today. Now, um, when you just think mighty God, just within the words, right? We say, well, what is a mighty God? First, just the idea that this baby would be God, that Jesus would be God, that God would come down in flesh is already a rather radical idea, that God would come into this mess and into this squalor, into this craziness and live, and, then, and that he would come in as a helpless babe and be born into a manger of a poor family of which there would be all sorts of controversy around because, man, was she pregnant? Like, or not was she pregnant, but rather, did she commit adultery? Did she not? Were there, there was no... All of the things, and this is where God decided to put himself. And that God is a mighty and awesome and powerful God. And that is who rules us today. And so, hear me, we don't, just by face value, like mighty God, Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is all-powerful, which is already worthy of our praise and our full submission. But let's color that a little bit today. I think, and after studying a lot of commentaries on it, that I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of what was going on in the Jews' minds would have been a return to the Torah. As they started thinking through, well, what does this mighty God thing really mean? How does this work itself out? I wonder, because mighty God does not show up all that often in the Old Testament, and the primary text where we see it is here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. 
Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 22, we're going to have some people come down and pass out Bibles. I don't know if I, we didn't get them on the screen, I don't think. And so because I didn't, especially, please have your Bibles so you know what I'm saying is real and or just really tune your ears in today. Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 22. And so we see, I think, the primary text where the Jewish mind, in hope for a coming Savior, would have gone as they thought through this prophecy from Isaiah. Verse 14 says this. And if you're looking, it's the third book from the beginning, okay? So Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. No, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Sorry, fourth book. My bad. Fifth book. Numbers? Numbers, for Deut- Numbers Deuteronomy. Fifth book. <laughs> I, swear I'm de- I swear I'm decent at this job. I don't, um, Deuteronomy 10, 14, your fifth book. Here we go. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, okay? And the mighty God's gonna show up in verse 17. So if you're wondering about the connection here, this is the connection, verse 17, but focus with me, verses 14 through 16. Because what you see, and you're going to see another cycle of it in verses 17 through 19 before the summation in verses 20 through 22, but in 14 through 16 and 17 through 19, you see who God is, what God did, and what this means for his people. Who God is, what God did, and what this means for his people. And it's two primary things that I think would go through the Jewish mind as they thought, this babe, this Jesus, this Savior, this ruler that is coming, that he will be about. This is who he is and what he's done, what it means for his people. So again, 14 through 16, I think initially, who is God? Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Who is God? He is the ruler, the oversight, and the owner of everything. There is not something that he does not claim is his. You do not, I do not, no human truly possesses or owns anything. We are all stewards. Everything you have owned by him. Okay, The heavens, the earth, and all that's within it, he is the owner, the proprietor. He organized authors and does it all. That's who he is. Now, what does he do with that power? Now, I just want you guys to think for a moment, if you can bring it back to present day, what do you know as we look across culture about people when they begin to grab and get a hold of that much power? Does it usually move towards benevolence? Often not. Like, usually it corrupts. Power tends to corrupt the soul. And so often, the more power that's gained, the more we wield it for selfish gain. So what does God do? the one that owns and holds the heavens in his hand. It says, The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. So what does God do with his power? He sets his heart on humanity. He doesn't set his heart upon himself. He doesn't use that power to say, No, 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 this is not going to be about you. I'm just going to use you for me. No, no, what does God do as the owner of all things? He says, I will set my heart and my eyes on you. I will look upon your soul, your life, and I will move into the building. That's what he does. With all the power, all the might, all the wealth, he moves into the world. 
and engages with the people. So what? What does this mean for the people of God? Verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For those of you not too familiar with the Bible or what this could possibly mean, circumcision in the Old Testament was actually a sign that they were, the Jews, a, the people of God. It was a, it was a physical sign that uh, established a covenant between God and man that said, hey, we're in this together. I am yours and you are mine. And so he's saying is circumcise your heart. In other words, make it so that your heart is a physical representation that if someone were to sit down to you and say, hey, what, is, what are you feeling now? What are you thinking now? What are the things that you care about and desire and move towards? Do they reflect God? Do they reflect that you are in relationship with me? He asks. Circumcise your heart, therefore, and be no longer stubborn. Stop just continuing to just live the way you're living, Israel. Repent of your sin and return to me. I'm your God. I own it all. And here's what I did. I moved towards you. I love you. My heart is set on you. And so forget the other idols of the day and come back to me. Now, I want to take another text, Leviticus 20. 22 through 26, and just look at a few of these verses as it pertains to the holiness of the people of God. Again, I think ruminating in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. It says this, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. I am the God of everything. I spoke the world and you into existence. I formed you in your mother's womb. And so follow me because my heart is set on you. Obey my rules and my statutes. And very clearly, do not allow your morality, okay, to be formed by the culture that surrounds you. Do not allow who you are called to be to be shaped by what's popular thought in the midst of your world at the time. Allow what you know your life should look like, both on a moral sense and a mission sense, to be shaped by the kingdom of God and by the king that rules over it. So leave behind the stubbornness and the foolishness and the sin. Repent and be holy and come to me and be my people for my heart is set on you. Because he is a mighty God. Because he is all powerful and awesome and worthy of praise. This is how the people of God are called to live. Now we can just kind of say, well, that's just Israel, right? That's not for us. Holiness, repentance, that's, that's not for us. It's Israel. No, no. That'd be foolishness. We're going to bring this back to us in a little bit. Let's keep going. Verse 17 through 19, the second round, the second cycle of who he is, what he did, what we're to do, this mighty God. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land 
of Egypt. Our God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the ruler of rulers, the authority of authorities, etc., etc. He runs the whole show. There is nothing that compares to him. There is no one worth following that can touch him. Everything he says is the best way it's been said, and it's the best thing for the flourishing of you in this world. Amen? That's because he's the mighty God, awesome and powerful. That's who he is. What has he done? He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. What does God do as the ruler of rulers? What does he do as the God of gods? He cares for the broken, the disenfranchised, the hurting, the outsider, the enemy. What, what does he do with the fact that he gets to dictate how the world runs? That he gets to dictate the way that the people of God function, that the way that the world best flourishes, he gets to decide. And you know what he says? It best flourishes. It's the way to live by caring for those who are broken, hurting, the outsider, the destitute, and the enemy, which were the father, the widow, and the sojourner. Now, these three people groups are interesting. There's one thing that ties them all together. And ties them in with the fourth group, which we're going to see as we go through some cross-text here, which is the Levite. See, the Levite was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the Levites, from the Levites came the holy priesthood that we see in the Old Testament that would intercede on behalf of the people of God to God, restoring their right relationship with him. Okay, But the Levites had no home. The Levites instead had to bunk up, had to shack up, had to move into the homes of the people with which they were called to serve. And so hear me, the four people groups that the Old Testament talks about that don't have a home, Levites, the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. That God's heart was for those with no home. How does the ruler of rulers think that this life is best lived? in service and in mission, it's to care for those with no home. Deuteronomy 14, 29. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands do. Deuteronomy 16, 11, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, female servant, the Levite who's within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Deuteronomy 16, 14, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and daughter, male servant, female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. Deuteronomy 24, 17, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garments in pledge. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 21. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, which I know you've all done, okay? You shall not get back at it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of all your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward, for it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. I'm not done. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And this is, not, this is in there. I'm not saying this. And all the people shall say, Amen. God's heart is for the homeless. Those who have no place. Much like himself when he came. Do you understand that when Jesus showed up, he became the very thing he continued to call the people of God to say, this is your responsibility. You think I'm mighty and awesome? You want to sing songs to me? Great, but then live it out. I must not be that. If, if we're not living in this, maybe it's just not that awesome. There's a quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, When we begin to glimpse the true reality of all that God is, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he's done. And that worship is holistic, friends. It's a Romans 12-esque worship that says it's all your life. It's not just a few songs on a Sunday. That the right way of fully understanding who God is is a life devoted to worship. Now, this is not, hey, you better do it to get right with God. That's just foolish. It's, God, you're all these things. I magnify it. I see it. I spend time in it. I worship you. I see you. You've loved me. You've given your heart to me. You've moved into the town. You've come. And so because of the gospel, I do what you do. And your heart was with the fatherless the sojourner, and the widow. This is, this is our mission. So we watch a video like that. I'm like, amen, and let's keep going. Like that, we've scratched the surface, church. That's our job. Like we see it on there. This is not yay for the people who've done it. It's like, okay, church, what does that mean? Let's rally, let's go. There's kids in Arizona that don't have homes. They're the fatherless. It's our job. Because he's a mighty God. The summation so what to this whole text. I'm sorry about what's going on with the mic. but The summation so what for this text. Lands in 20 through 21. And the end of 19 where he says, why do you do all this? Why live this way? Why, why is God calling me? He says, because you used to be sojourners in Egypt. People of God, you used to be sojourners in Egypt and you longed that the Egyptian people would treat you with the dignity and the care with which my kingdom would. They didn't. So don't live like that. Live different. Live like my kingdom. Live the way I care for the homeless. Don't live like the cultures and the nations that surround you. Don't live like the way that they say this is the best way you're supposed to do it. Say, what does the kingdom of God have to say about our movement into the love for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow? That's the question we ask. And so in 20 and 21, the summary says this, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, hold fast him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Again, the same cycle, but a little mixed up in verse 21. Who is God? He is your praise. 
He is your celebration. Every time there is joy, it's because of him. He is your God. Listen, and that's whether or not you believe it or not. That's just true for everyone's world. He is God. Like it's, That's just undisputable. He is God over all. But tell me, especially for us in the room who would say we are Christians and have said, God, you are Lord and Savior. Savior, you've delivered me. Lord, you get to tell me about my life. You have free reign to dictate what my life looks like. That's what lordship means. He is God. He is your God. He is your praise. And what did he do? Great and terrifying things that you have seen. And what does this mean? That we shall fear and reverence the Lord your God because he is mighty and powerful and awesome. And we shall serve him and hold fast to him. We shall serve this God and tether ourselves. The New Testament, abide in him, be close to him, be in relationship with him, gifted to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And now forever he is with us wherever we go. For those who would claim he is Lord and Savior of my life. Three more times, mighty God shows up in the Old Testament. Again in Isaiah, later as he continues to prophesy, moving on into Jeremiah, which is already after the Babylonians have taken control and now they're in exile. And again, they're saying, mighty God, come. This is the work I need you to do. And so they're waiting in eager hope and expectation. And then again, last time in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah, as they're sent back to the land to rebuild the city walls through Nehemiah, through the work of Ezra rebuilding the temple. And they say, mighty God, we need you. Where are you? And they wait in eager hope and expectation. When will the Messiah come? And then Matthew 1, 21 through 25. She will bear a son. And he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Friends, the wait is over. Like the mighty God who rules and reigns over his people is here, and he has delivered us. He has saved us that although, as we see in Colossians, Jesus holds all things together in this world, that everything was made through him, for him, and by him, even though, although he's all that, he came and lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die, and in his resurrection grants new life to all those who would claim him as Lord and Savior. Although Jesus is God in the flesh, he invites in the enemy and says, no, come and be part of this family. Even though for years and years and centuries and centuries, you have rejected me, disobeyed me, shunned me and asked for other idols that you think are better, I still long to know you and to be in communion with you. Friends, the wait is over and our mighty God reigns over this world today. Now, that's celebratory. That's worth singing. That's worth singing all the Christmas carols that keep coming on the radio that eventually by December 25th you're a little tired of, but you keep hearing. Hark the herald angels sing. Like you just gotta, you gotta keep hearing it because he's here. The wait is over. And yet sometimes I find, do we not live as if we're still waiting for something? 
Maybe not on the front end of the praise stuff. I feel like, you know, you get enough Christians together, generally there's some, you know, sometimes worship will sing or, hey, how are you doing reading the Bible? There's some accountability. But I wonder especially on the other end, on the mission stuff. Are we actually being a people of God who believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy, that he is wonderful counsel, that he is the mighty God that has done these things and then called his people to do the same? I wonder. See, the beauty of Advent is it gives us another opportunity to look honestly at Jesus and at us and about the church and about faith and say, what does it mean that you're here now? What has changed? What is different? What is your church doing? What am I doing? And hear me, I hate that question because oftentimes I don't want to make us the center of this story. It's him. So it's always, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? But I want to say, church, what are we doing in response that the people of Israel were called to? That guess what? You too and I too and we all are called to as well. Do we find ourselves moving towards repentance and holiness? Do I say, God, you're mighty and powerful and glorious, and so I will repent of the sin that for some reason I just think is not that big a deal. I will move away from the brokenness and the pain that continues, right, to cycle through my life. And hear me, I know that's not just an easy thing. I know it's not like, all right, I'll do it. Sometimes we get caught in these cycles, and if that's true, tell people, be accountable, and also be vulnerable. We want to walk alongside you as God sanctifies through the power of the Spirit. Is that us? Is our response to God being a mighty God, to him being here, repentance and holiness? Because it should be. That when we come to Advent season, it's an honest opportunity for the church to look at life and say, where am I at? And do I need to move to repentance and holiness? And the second half of it is to say, if you are the mighty God, how are we doing in loving who you love? Do we love the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. Is that what we're known for? And I'll tell you, up until recently, I don't, I don't know how many of these things we could say yes to, and I still think the church has a long way to go in regards to our love for the fatherless and the widow. But I think we've stepped into that pretty well. But there's something about this sojourner piece that seems to get us tripped up. That people without a home seem to trip us up. And, and I think it's because we have bought into a mission that's defined by our culture and the powers that exist outside of the church to define what it means for a kingdom people to care for the sojourner well. And that is so wrong. It is literally, it's against everything that the Bible speaks to. This last week, or two weeks ago, Verity and I um, had a chance to get away and do, go to vacation. And uh, I just start praying and God, thinking through this series and thinking through life and where I'm at and, and asking some of these questions. I'll never try and ask you guys, hey, you need to do this without having already, usually like I try and prep those questions, things to think through weeks in advance because I'll see, man, I'm also in desperate need of this stuff, Okay. And for the last few weeks, just churning through, God, where am I at in holiness? What do I need to repent of? Like, Lord, like, what are you doing? What, are, what sin issues do you need to rise up? 
And then how, how am I doing in loving the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner? And all week, as much as I necessarily didn't want to, I just kept everywhere I was at, just nonstop was reading about this migrant caravan coming up through Mexico. Now, I know that already some of you are back on your heels a little bit about where I'm about to go with this, okay? And I understand the dynamics in the room and where people line up on this issue. I've read an insane amount about it. And here's, the, here's my conclusion. Um, where we've gone wrong is we're having all this dialogue and conversation about what the United States of America should do and what's right for our government to do. And hear me, I understand that there's stuff in our laws. I get all that stuff. Hear me. I get it, but I want to set that to the side for a moment. And I want to say to us, the church, that migrant caravan of people, like, listen, we failed them. Okay? The government doesn't fail them, they're not expected to care for them. We are. Like, this is a church thing. We've backed ourselves into a corner where now we're like, well, I don't know if the government can handle it and there's rules and there's laws. All right, great, but what does it have to do with us? That's not your first citizenship. That's not the law that you live by, primarily. We failed the caravan. We've failed the sojourner. Why? Because we don't have houses lined up along the border that can care for people where in droves the church says, come on in, I will feed you, I will clothe you, and I will show you the love of Jesus. So I get why there's all the debate. It's because we've failed before, and so now we don't know what to do. Because the answer truly lies in sacrifice. The answer lies in the church being the church and waking up from its belief that somehow this religion's become about us and it's become about what we have and what we own and how high we can ascend when everything in the gospel says, how low can you go to lift up those who are hurting? Where have we, and, and so like all week I'm like, just thinking, and so last night the hope was to come into this text and say, let's just talk how mighty he is and how wondrous and awe-inspiring and let's sing and let's rejoice and hear me. That's the key and that's the start, absolutely. For us to rightly see that Jesus, the mighty God, has arrived and is king and he is worthy of worship and praise and celebration. That's where this starts. When us giving him renown, seeing him for who he is, rightly then worshiping him through word and deed. Which means church, we love the soldier. We don't allow, like Israel, we don't allow the outside voices, the outside cultures, the outside laws to be the primary lens with how we view the church's engagement in a church responsibility. God did not tell the United States of America to write something in the Constitution that says, this is how you need to act. Although he's sovereign, maybe in some ways he did, but you see what I'm saying. But he gave us his scriptures and he gave us his Bible to say, no, you know what though? Church, 
People of God, I do call you to care about this and to live like this and to sacrifice like me like this. So when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, that doesn't mean follow me to your bigger whatever or your more of whatever. It means lay it down that the world would know he has come and he's king. I didn't do that for effect. I'm that just broken in my own spirit about how convicted I've been that I suck at this. So hear me, if you hear anything today, just know that your pastor has bought into the lies of consumerism and culture as much as the person next to you. And I've missed what we're supposed to be about And I've pacified language, even from the pulpit, because I've been nervous about building a kingdom here. And that is so sinful and so self-righteous and so far from the heart and mission of God. And we can't do it like that anymore. The people that are hurting and broken in the city of Flagstaff, it's not like we got to go to Mexico to find that. They're right here. The foster care system, still 16,000 plus kids in the system. And we keep saying, I want to reiterate, this doesn't mean all of you, hey, you got to all bring in kids tomorrow. This means you need to pray and you seek the Lord's will and face on this. You need to find out what your involvement does look like. You need to stop getting in debates and fights that are about things on a different political level than what our primary level is. You need to start looking into the scriptures and stop allowing the news that you love to read the most define for you what your life and your engagement is supposed to look like. And you need to start opening up your scriptures and say, Lord, what is your kingdom about? And all that stuff is for me too. The issues are vast. But that's why God called the people together. It's not to do this individual to do this together. To say, I'm putting together a whole group that together will engage. That together will care. Some of you are thinking like, okay, you can yell a lot and you can say all this stuff is wrong. Well, what's the solution? We brought up the migrant caravan. What do you think we should be doing? And I'm saying, let's start by knowing what work the church is already doing at every border city. And you put in the time, it's amazing. The way the churches in San Diego, okay, in Chula Vista, the way that the churches in El Paso, in Nogales, the way that these churches are coming together in unity to care for the sojourner, and we can say, well, how do we bless them? How do we be part of that? That's a start. You can start to have conversations and dialogues with people who are in the church that are saying stuff about how we need to leave them alone and they shouldn't be here. Listen. Wow, man, like everyone's going to leave. I don't know how this is going to shake out, but I'm just telling you, start having conversations about God's heart for those people. All of this, because he is the mighty and awesome and powerful God that rules and reigns over this world. And because he's God, And because, Christian, you have said, God, Jesus, you will be Lord of my life, what he says goes. 
So I'm just asking myself and I'm asking our church to live up to what we say about ourselves, which is that we're people of the book and we're people of a mighty God. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does not return void. We thank you, God, that you are not in the business of tickling ears, Lord. And I, I confess and repent before our body, before our people. Lord, if I, and in the moment, not if, when I have actively found loopholes Where I've uh, intentionally just thought, well, this, God, just help us be more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, you, you're, you're inside your people. God, you convict your church, you counsel your church, and you long for more for your church. God, I think you, you quantify, God, like success through a different lens and a different measure. God, give us your heart, your eyes, your mind, your ears. God, give us you that in everything, God, we would work towards the long process and the long work of being like Jesus to the world. Lord, this is a helpless and foolish act to do on our own. We do it only because the gospel is true and that you have come and that you're here, and that you reign, and the wait is over. God, until you come again, would we be a people that show you to the world? Truly, truly, Lord, bring your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.